You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. And welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law. And with me, very excited to finally have on the podcast after years of waiting for him to become a lawyer and now start his own firm, Chad Haggerty. (laughs) I'm so happy to be here, Kyla. Thanks for the invite. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to have you. So I thought it would be great for us to talk a little bit about, well, about two things. The first thing I wanted to talk about is you, because for those who don't know, and if you don't know who Chad is, you're not paying enough attention. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Chad, uh, prior to becoming a lawyer, was an RCMP, RCMP? yes. Yep. Yeah, okay, yep. I was Wait, wasn't it Calgary Police? No, it was RCMP. <laughs> you were an RCMP officer. Um, and you had a lot of experiences with driving law from the policing side of it. I did. Yeah. I was uh, RCMP for 17 years in Northern Alberta. And uh, um, one of my detachments, we, I got close, I had close to 300 impaired driving charges one year. Um, there was one guy who had more than me, but it wasn't unusual to get, you know, three impaireds a night. Um, and we weren't on a traffic unit. Uh, they were just that frequent. And so tons and tons of experience. I, I know that I've testified in, I'm sure it's over 700 impaired trials. Wow. Good for you. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, that's over the course of, you know, a 17 year career and, and back in the day when, uh, impaired trials were you know, that you'd have two or three a day, and that's not an exaggeration. Did you, in the course of your policing duties, ever get to attend any fatal collisions? Oh, uh, yeah. Actually, my first night of work, um, I left Regina, uh, flew to Edmonton, took a Greyhound bus from Edmonton to St. Paul, Alberta, north northeastern Alberta, um, and my first shift was the next night, and um, at about 20 after 11 that night, I went to my first fatal collision. Um, alcohol was involved, but uh, subsequent testing found that it was it was only minor. Uh, I mean, it was, I think it was like below 0.04, if I remember right. There were no charges at all, actually. It uh, um, ended up just being a, a horribly tragic accident. Um, yeah, and I... Yeah, no, it was it was shitty, and uh, um, I think the the worst, all the fatal accidents were bad, but the one that had the oddest fallouts was uh, a pedestrian um, fatality uh, struck by struck by a driver, um, and then three years later, the brother of the pedestrian that was struck actually shot at me, uh, upset that I hadn't charged anybody in the. Uh, in the accident. So just wow. a weird, a weird cycle. That is weird. So you, then you, from being on that side of things as a police officer, did, you know, there's a mentality that I think you and I see on 
Twitter and on social media and, and from the public and our just general out in the public endeavors a lot, which is that it's somehow wrong or amoral to represent people who are charged with impaired driving offenses. And this attitude seems to be particularly prevalent when it comes to impaired driving offenses because these people risk other people's lives, they could have killed somebody or they did kill somebody and they're just gonna go back onto the road and, and do it again. Was that something that you struggled with thinking while you were in policing? It's something I struggled with when I was in policing and it's actually something I struggled with in law school uh, because when I was policing, I had absolutely adopted the mindset that uh, um, you know, people were choosing to do something wrong and that wasn't always the case um and, and i say that you know having been uh you know on many sides of the courtroom uh, what i slowly grew to understand and this was um as a result of a, a defense lawyer discussing the charter with me and how the charter impacts every single file that that goes before uh, into a courtroom and it should impact every action that a police officer undertakes um, and while a lot of people think that defense lawyers are trying to you know use technicalities to skirt the law and let people get away with you know heinous actions the reality is that police officers have to do the job in a way that's charter compliant now i think most listeners of this podcast would have some idea about that um, and, and i think there's a responsibility that lawyers and knowledgeable people have to share that knowledge so more people could understand um, the impact of charter infringing actions uh, by police. Um, so I did understand that mindset. I questioned it in law school. And now that I work entirely in criminal defense, uh, my feeling on it has, has obviously uh, come full circle. And now when I see police, um, actions that are non-compliant and sometimes flat-out misconduct um, the implications of that and the, the the downstream effects of that are much more exaggerated than than i would have believed um, and certainly much more dangerous in my mind um, than the average uh, you know, impaired driver or person charged with most other offenses can you elaborate on that a little more, like the downstream effects? What do, what do you mean by that? Sure. Uh, well, over the last you know year and a half or so, we've seen uh, across North America, especially, we've seen what happens when police take liberties. And I mean, the 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 big things are when you know police action results in the needless and often criminal death of a civilian that they're dealing with. But it happens in smaller ways, too. I can think of files where police officers um, illegally searched an individual's car or home or their pockets or their backpack. Um, those little transgressions that the officers are, are making, uh, th those things are not charter compliant. They're breaching the rights of the citizens they're supposed to be serving. And when those little things add up, they lead to the big things like officers kneeling on a neck because they think they can take liberties and they think they're beyond reproach. And I think a lot of times defense lawyers, starting with 
traffic tickets and you know bylaw infractions are making sure that police officers are doing their job in a way that respects the rights of the citizens that they're dealing with or the the people that they're dealing with and that that should carry throughout the system so when i talk about the downstream effects i i refer specifically to the policing mindset that says we can do what we want because we're the police and i had a mindset especially when i was policing that my default response to police action was it's probably right uh that's not the case anymore and i still have friends that are police officers and they they've understood we've talked about the fact that i no longer take a default police are probably right approach to most things and the friends that i have uh, both within and without are outside of policing understand that now because i you know i i articulate the downstream effects right the i mean i think it's kind of weird because it's like a mirror all you know a lot of these people that are making these comments to you and me about defending drunk drivers or whatever type of of alleged criminal um you know they're saying that if you get them off they're more likely to do it again and yet they're not looking (laughs) in that mirror and seeing that if the court lets them slide on a you know a minor search violation because they didn't have a suspicion you know you know, in an ASD case, a roadside breathalyzer case, if they don't have a suspicion there, but the court lets it slide, then the next time when they don't have a suspicion to do, you know, a sniffer dog search, or they don't have a suspicion uh, to do an investigative detention, and it Absolutely. turns into one of those more serious situations than a brief roadside detention, all of a sudden you, you know, you're endorsing that conduct and you're telling the police that it's okay to fall short of the charter it's okay, go do it again. Absolutely. And, and people always caution about making slippery slope arguments. And, that's, and that's, that is what we're doing. It's a slippery slope to, to infringe a charter right in a minor way because that leads to bigger infraction. Uh, and people caution against that because it's sometimes a fallacy. Um, and, and I'm basing you know, my position on, on my, my personal experience, but also basing it on you know, the, the education that I had in, in my undergrad, which was uh, a criminal justice undergrad, and the uh, education from law school. And my experience now as a criminal defense lawyer through my articling period, that says to me that when an officer makes these little transgressions and then becomes a trainer or recruits to see the officer doing that, uh, there's a jurisdiction in Alberta that's referred to as the charter free zone. And, and it's known uh, as the charter free zone by uh, prosecutors, uh, defense lawyers, probably by jurists and, and certainly by police officers. Uh, and, and the reason it's called the charter free zone. <laughs> yeah, you're in BC and you know exactly where I'm talking about. I'm sure there are lawyers in Ontario uh, who know where I'm talking about. Um, and you know, if you're from Red Deer, you would definitely know where I'm talking about. Um, and the reason is that I've done cross-examination where police officers were admitting to charter violations and had no clue that they were admitting to charter violations because it just didn't impact their thinking. Um, 
And when it comes to something as important as fundamental rights that are afforded people in Canada, that's the sort of thing that um, if you're going to make a slippery slope argument, it should be on something as, as vital as fundamental human rights. Yep. All right. So now you're on the other side of things. How does your experience as a police officer cause, like, help you defend your clients better, I guess? And yes, uh, this is an advertisement for, for <laughs> CH, CH advocacy. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I started my firm, uh, a very dear friend, um, I was struggling with the name, a very dear friend said, he you need to call it CH advocacy. And and it wasn't until I saw it written that I went, oh, it's Chavacacy. That is the cheesiest, silliest, perfectest name. Um, so thanks for that, Kyla. Uh, so how does it impact? Um, I think the first thing it does is a lot of the clients I talk to um, have a belief that I, quote unquote, know how the police think. And I think it gives them a measure of comfort. Um, one of the things that's often overlooked is that people going through, people facing criminal charges and going through the, the justice system, uh, criminal justice system, um, are dealing with an incredible amount of stress. It, uh, the average person in the system is not your hardened, you know, Hollywood criminal. It's your neighbor, your brother, you, you know, a family member. Um, and this is all brand new. Um, so, so when they find out, and I, I, it's not on my website, I think it is actually on my website that I'm an ex-police officer, but either way, I, I, I let them know that up front because I like to be transparent. And, um, so it provides a measure of relief. Um, and then it, I don't know if there's a lot to the statement that I quote unquote know how police think, um. Because I know I know a ton of criminal defense lawyers, yourself included, who also, quote unquote, know how the police think. And that's through years of experience reading files and cross-examining police officers, et cetera. Um, I think what it's done is as a two-month-old lawyer, um, I think perhaps I've got a bit of a head start on other people who are two-month calls because of my previous professional experience. I think so. I think hundred percent you have this you, well you have a familiarity with the courtroom and testifying but you also have an insight right you've been mm. the person in the witness box and I think there's a lot that probably comes from knowing what it's like to be cross-examined by a good lawyer and a bad lawyer knowing mm. knowing the sort of I'm, I'm sure internal ethical struggle you experience when you're made to stand there and answer for conduct that you realize was wrong and to not you know to to resist that urge to like lie to protect yourself or to cover it up or yeah. to equivocate about it like i imagine as a police officer that must have been very hard to you know to stand there and go yeah i fucked it up and just be completely transparent about it yeah, I, actually, uh, appropriate for the Driving Law podcast is um, the first time I was on the stand and, and I had zero notes on an impaired 
That's so not true. That's I not true. You. <laughs> oh, and, and and defense counsel, uh, yeah, ran at me with a you know, head down, big smile on their face. Um, I had notes about the driving pattern, arrest time, charter, caution, demand, departed scene, arrived at detachment, put in phone room. And then my note stopped about the offense. And the next note was about heart rate, breathing rate, skin color, uh, because the ind individual fell down and I thought they were having a heart attack. And I completely ignored any semblance of police work and, and went into first aid mode. Um, and then going back, and then the calls happened, the shift finished, and then going, we ended up charging with a straight impaired. Um, because you know that's the humane thing to do, apparently. Um, but you when it went, a heart attack, what's wrong with you, man? <laughs> I'm not the same person. I was yeah, I know. 20 years old, and uh, I can't remember what happened. But I know we ended up charging. Went to trial, and defense lawyer looks at my notes, and there's three quarters of a page of notes, maybe, and uh, um, and there's no way there was no way to answer that except with the truth i thought mm -hmm. the guy was having a heart attack i didn't take notes but i guarantee i remember i still remember that that was in 1994 and i still remember it um because it scared the heck out of me now admitting in front of a judge and you know i was you know three months into my policing career at the time five maybe six months whatever um admitting to a judge and a defense lawyer you know the big scary enemy defense lawyer that my notes were terrible and i think i actually said that um said so, you know these these notes are terrible or horrible or something like that and i take much better notes now um it actually you know it did result in a conviction because of the the amount of impaired driving evidence that that I related, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but, um, but yeah, it sucked to 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 admit that I was deficient in, in my duties, um, mm -hmm. and I think that's that's one of the problems that that people don't see is is the stress that goes through there, and as you know, in my role now um, as defense counsel, um, there's nothing I love more than cross-examining police officers; they're professional witnesses. Um, their whole job when it comes to prosecution is entirely useless if they don't take the time to properly document their actions, their observations, their impressions. Um, and if they don't properly document it, there are times when I do feel like I have a really good idea of what was going on in the car or underneath the hat uh, when they're approaching things. Um, but I'm sure you have the same experience. Yeah, pretty much. I, you know, you've muted yourself. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I just had to call. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like as a defense lawyer, it would be even easier, though, if your answer for I didn't take notes was I thought he was having a heart attack. Because then I just go, oh, okay, so all the symptoms you saw leading up to that, that could have been an early sign of a heart attack. Heart attacks don't happen like mm. immediately. There's signs leading up to them. You might have been misinterpreting everything you saw all along. Isn't that right? And I would have had to agree to that. Oh, yep. no, with one, you're straight impaired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, 
No, I yeah, beat you is... my imaginary trial. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, even simple things. I was uh, in a trial in, uh, in you know recently. Uh, it was an RCMP officer who didn't know me, and I didn't know him, but I knew where he was posted in his in, in his first posting, and I knew who his trainer probably was because there's only one person senior enough to be a trainer and working that into a question and, you know, uh, shook his confidence and, and um, really changed the, 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 the approach, the, the, the attitude he, he demonstrated towards me for the rest of that cross-examination. And uh, I gotta admit, it was really fun. It was really fun to mention his trainer's name and to guess right. Um, and and to see the change in his demeanor um, so I guess maybe sometimes you know the ex-cop thing does sort of help a little bit but uh, that's not going to happen often well what's the landscape like and I know you're only a couple weeks into actually being a practicing lawyer well maybe a, what is it it's over a month now god when was I oh two months actually the 17th was two months June 17th yeah. yeah, so time has flown by. It has. <laughs> um, well, you're only a couple months into being a practicing lawyer. What's the landscape for impaired driving cases like in Alberta right now? Uh, I, I actually haven't had that many impaired driving cases simply because uh, Calgary is blessed with incredibly talented, um, incredibly talented impaired driving lawyers. Um, and uh, and I've also been been lucky to to have had uh, uh, a full range of of files come in. Um, the biggest issue, and actually surprisingly, the the most common call I'm getting related to impaired driving um, has to do with the immediate roadside sanctions that Alberta introduced this year. Um, I in the last two months. So yeah, almost exactly, I, I guess it's eight weeks now this week um, that I've been a called lawyer and I've had at least one call a week about immediate roadside sanctions. And for those that don't know, um, in Alberta, if you're stopped and you haven't got a record and there, it wasn't a, um, uh, a, an accident uh, it, that, that involved uh, impairment, alcohol or drug impairment, um, the immediate roadside sanction program allows police officers to uh, seize your vehicle, um, fine you, and uh, and and essentially uh, impose punishment at roadside. Um, the issue with that is that if you want to challenge the police officer's actions, you have 10 days to do so. That's it. That's ridiculous. Well, I say this, we have seven in BC, but still it's ridiculous. <laughs> it is. And uh, in talking to some of the senior experienced uh, um, impaired lawyers, the, the, uh, the review board, um, you know the the people that you would file your appeal with have been incredibly police friendly or prosecution friendly, and the odds of winning 
a challenge to the immediate roadside sanction uh, are astronomical, from what I understand. Um, there's a very narrow ground. There are very narrow grounds by which you can appeal, and uh, the likelihood that any of those would be accepted, I'm told, is is quite low. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well. What do you recommend if I'm besides, I, I feel like you're implicitly saying, if you get one of these, don't call me. And a future episode of this podcast will feature some of the uh, premier Calgary impaired driving lawyers that Chad is talking about. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I, no, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not saying don't call me. Um, I have filed a couple of challenges and unfortunately both of those were struck. Um, but that doesn't, just because those were struck, it doesn't mean uh, that if you're facing immediate roadside sanction, it doesn't mean that you're, you have no hope. What it means is that as soon as possible, after, after uh, being issued an immediate roadside sanction, you need to contact a lawyer. This is not um, the sort of thing where, where the unrepresented individual uh, should be challenging, should be challenging these because uh, they are technical. They do require an understanding, not just of criminal law, but of administrative law, which which is different. And um, the my experience at two months two months call with uh, administrative law is not uh, the same, and it's not on par with with the senior lawyers. It um, uh, that that would be silly to suspect. And I, I try to be aware of my limitations, but um, it is highly fact specific. It, it is dependent. So if you are stopped, if you do have your vehicle towed and your license suspended, um, immediately put a note in your phone or type it when you get home or email yourself something. And at the top, right, for my lawyer. And write down as much as you can remember of the interaction because all of those facts are going to be important to whichever lawyer you talk to if you hope to challenge the, the roadside sanction. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, last question, Chad. Do you have any particular tips or advice for police officers? And there are many police officers listening to this podcast on how to best... and look, see, no one can ever say from now on that I'm not also nice to police officers and that I'm blah, 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 defense lawyer, hating police, anti-police and all that bullshit that they say. I'm anti-misconduct. If you are a police officer and you follow the law and you abide by the charter and you enforce the laws that are constitutionally valid in a constitutionally valid way, I got no problem with you. You're generating work for me. So Absolutely. Um, but do you have any tips for police officers dealing with impaired driving investigations? What do they need to know? I think the first thing in, in the impaired driving files that I've seen, a lot of them have uh, investigations that are uh, poorly documented, um, right from indicia of an impairment, uh, driving pattern, uh, you know, uh, driver condition, driver presentation. Uh, make sure those things are clearly documented. Um, articulate both in your notes and in the reports uh, 
that you draft afterwards uh exactly what you're seeing and don't you know stay away from the standard glazed eyes <laughs> nobody knows what 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 does glazed eyes mean? i know what a glazed There's donut a looks like donuts right i know yeah i remember saying that on the stand when you describe what glazed eyes look like and i said well you know a glazed donut you can see the donut but it's a little fuzzy because of the glazing that's what glazed eyes are like but don't don't use that because it's stupid i shouldn't have said it um but describe describe what you're seeing in in common parlance don't stick to the police jargon because it's garbage and it comes across as disingenuous and and uh boilerplate or it sounds like it's copied from somebody else so describe what you're seeing um be clear um and the last bit of the you know tip that i would get is if you currently use a mandatory alcohol screening just don't if you don't have reasonable suspicion just just friggin don't i hate the mandatory alcohol screening i know it's legal and i know it's been upheld by courts and it's still stupid yeah yeah don't don't mandatory alcohol screen if you have suspicion i would definitely say that i'm making an argument about that next week um absolutely because this is my take on it and i, I actually tell me publicly in this podcast whether you agree or disagree with me but if you disagree with me you're never getting invited back <laughs> <laughs> um my take on it is you can't if you hold a suspicion you can't go back and make a mandatory screening demand anyway. Similar to my opinion, if you believe somebody is impaired by alcohol on reasonable grounds, you can't go and make an ASD demand anyway. And the reason right. is that these are warrantless searches. They're presumed to be unreasonable, except if they are authorized by law. And the limited authorization to do a mandatory alcohol screening versus a suspicion demand versus a breath demand comes from compliance with those criminal code provisions. And if you don't meet all four corners of those provisions, the search is not authorized by law. So the very first step of that whole hunter and sell them um, test of whether or not a warrantless search is reasonable is failed right away because the search isn't authorized by law. And if, you get over that and you get to the question of whether the law is reasonable, then the law itself should be struck down if it's reasonable in the sense that it authorizes searches that are broader than what the four corners of that piece of legislation, that portion of the statute says. Because all of a sudden you're getting away from the constraints of an otherwise unlawful search through creating a specific law to address it. And you're saying, well, as long as there's some type of a law that authorizes some type of a search, if you're like generally within those, you may as well get a blood sample, right? Like it, it, it's absurd. That's I I'm don't saying. even have to fake my agreement with you so uh, so we can maintain <laughs> our friendship. No, I, I absolutely agree. And so wove through that really quickly. So for the layman, which I still some days consider myself one of, um, essentially reasonable suspicion was was the standard required to, to demand breath at roadside prior to mandatory alcohol screening. Reasonable suspicion is very, very that's a very low bar. Um, and, and police could overcome that hurdle quite easily, but it's still a bar. And if a police officer begins down the road to say, um, you know, I, you, you, 
there was a driving pattern. You were coming out of the bar that detected a note about alcohol or indicia of impairment, you know, fumbling with the driver's license, something like that. Uh, to, to have the suspicion and say, nope, you know what, I'm just going to stay away from that. I'm just going to use mandatory alcohol screen. To me, it seems like uh, police officers are, are being allowed to have their cake, and, sorry, have their donut and eat it too. And I know people are going to hate that, but I don't care. Um, and, and, and I think they're right. And when we, again, going back to the earlier comment, if we're talking about something as vital as charter granted rights and individual liberty and the imposition of the state on the individual through, through police action, then we should be drawing those lines a little more firmly. And sure, if they want to create legislation that allows for mandatory alcohol screening, fine. But you can't also, uh, you, you can't have it both ways. We shouldn't be able to have it both ways. Awesome. We're still allowed to be friends. This is good. Okay. <laughs> Speaking good. of being friends, Chad, since we're friends, I thought that I would invite you to take part in the best part of the podcast, which you as a sometimes listener, probably I Yes. Oh, we're gonna do. We're gonna do the ridiculous driver of the week. The ridiculous driver of the week. Yes. Yes. Maybe this time the horn won't scare me. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, um, this is a case in Caledonia, but I don't. I don't think. It's Caledonia, Ontario. Um, it's not clear to me whether this is in in Canada or not. Um, I don't think so. I think it's Caledonia somewhere in the U.S. Racine okay. County. Ever heard of it? I have not. No. Um, so this guy, he's 19. He crashes into a fire hydrant, but keeps going full speed then crashes into a ditch. He was going 100 miles per hour. Well, this must be in the U.S. It's uh, um, Wisconsin. Oh, perfect. Actually, just looked it up. Yeah, Wisconsin. Okay. Wisconsin man. 100 miles per hour, hits a, hits a fire hydrant, hits a, hits a ditch. Um, and apparently before all of this, people were like pleading with him in the car, four other people in the car, pleading with him to slow down. He's not slowing down. The car... Sh- catches on fire he gets out he runs away the occupants are all piling out like a freaking clown car kind of sad covered in blood um yeah uh uh, and he was arrested (laughs) wow yeah like if you're gonna Um, go go big right i mean the only thing he didn't do is like end up in a lake or up a tree uh but uh yeah, I mean, the fire hydrant does kind of cover both of those, though. It's, yeah. yeah. And I, I, but the wow. idea of, like, crashing into the fire hydrant and then your car catching on fire, how you go That's to put glorious. it out, dude? Right? <laughs> that is fantastic. Wow. Yeah. I was so, yeah. He's, yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, he's not going he's probably not going to be driving for a while, but he's not going to have to buy beer whenever he gets around to drinking them again, because that story should get drinks bought for him. Not that I endorse that sort of behavior. 
Yeah. And even, even better than this, he didn't just do this like randomly on his own, you know, like as a, as a police officer, you know, you used to come upon the accident scene after and get this from, from witnesses. No, no, no. He was being pursued by the police the whole time. Oh my God. Wow. Wait, <laughs> does that mean it's in the States? Does that mean that there's video like dash cam video oh. of this somewhere? There probably is. It's not in the uh, news story I found, but I'm sure it'll come out because we've yeah. got to find that. Yep. We've got to find that. That that would be right up there with best police footage. Uh, and I think the only one that rivals that would be the guy in Edson, Alberta, who was singing the Bohemian Rhapsody in the back of the police car. He remembered all the words, which is proof to me that he was sober. 100% agree. And 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 he. <laughs> saying better than i do so that's that's not a high bar but he did yeah that was was a good one all right well that is our podcast chad how can people reach you at ch advocacy which they can write down and then sound out so (laughs) so if you're in alberta uh i have taken a file in bc but uh nowhere in southern bc um i am at uh, uh chadvocacy.com c-h-a-d-b-o-c-a-c-y.com i'm on twitter at uh, uh c-h-a-g-g-164 chag164 mm-hmm. and uh yeah that's really about it um but you don't have an office phone number no, no, my oh well, I, my office phone number is uh, is on the website. It's five eight seven eight 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 three three six nine. Feel okay. free to call or text. Great, everyone, call Chad for your criminal problems in Alberta, or if you need advice uh, as a police officer about how to comply with your charter obligations, because Chad's not above advising people on uh, being better at their jobs. Uh, actually, a Crown and I had actually discussed uh, teaching a course in the Charter-Free Zone, to a Charter Refresher course, uh, and the, the Crown made the offer, and unfortunately, that offer was declined. By the police? By the police. Hmm. Is it the Crown yeah. whom I know? Uh, it wasn't, uh, but I am going to run that by the that Crown in the near future and see if maybe uh, effort number two will succeed. Yes, do it. I'd love to see you two do that. I will. Uh, <laughs> we had that that crown that we talked about. Did I tell you he and I had like a two hour and forty minute bail hearing? Yes. Yeah, yeah. He did well. He he's, did very well. Yeah, he's a good lawyer. Yeah, he is. Um, okay. Well, that's our podcast. If you need to reach us at Vancouver Criminal Law because you don't know how to spell Chadvocacy, even though Chad spelled it, give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online, vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.